The views and opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any company. Any content provided should be considered their opinion and are not intended to be interpreted as an endorsement. Today's topic is a look into the life of a scientist solving a problem. Welcome to our Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast brought to you by Bruker Nano Analytics. We look forward to bringing you a new podcast regularly. My name is Cody Morton. I'm a marketing communications specialist at Bruker Nano Analytics and an information enthusiast. If you like to learn from specialists in their field and hear what technologies are solving their problems, you will enjoy this podcast. Author Mark Twain wrote this about today's topic in his book, Life on the Mississippi, published in 1883. The Mississippi is not a commonplace river, but on the contrary, is in all ways remarkable. It is a remarkable river in this, that instead of widening towards its mouth, grows narrow and deeper. The difference in rise and fall is also remarkable, not in the upper, but in the lower river. The rise is tolerably uniform down to Natchez, about 50 feet, but at Bayou La Force, the river rises only 24 feet. At New Orleans, only 15 and just above the mouth, only two and one half feet. Although the Mississippi's mud builds land, but slowly down at the mouth where the Gulf's billows interfere with its work, it builds fast enough in better protected regions higher up. A hundred years later, in his book, Charles Kuralt's America, published in 1996, American journalist Charles Kuralt said, the Mississippi River, carries the mud of 30 states and two provinces, 2,000 miles south to the Delta, and deposits 500 million tons of it every year. The business of the Mississippi, which it will accomplish in time, is methodically to transport all of Illinois to the Gulf of Mexico. Whether you agree with it or not, we're going to find out what this all means to modern-day scientists in Louisiana. As today, we talked to Caitlin Turner in Louisiana about her studies with the wetlands at the end of the Mississippi River at Lake Pontchartrain in southeastern Louisiana. Thank you so much, Caitlin Turner. She is joining us today. Caitlin is a PhD student with Louisiana State University. And Caitlin, you are currently located in New Orleans, or you is your campus in New Orleans? I'm in Baton Rouge, but we do a lot of field work in New Orleans. Okay, great. I was going to say I uh, got to uh, meet you in person at AGU in December of 2021 in New Orleans. So I wasn't sure where you were actually located because I know your poster, your uh, information was gathered not in New Orleans, not in the waterways there, but in New Jersey. You did some work with Kim Russell, who is currently retired, was then not retired, application scientist for Bruker, and now she is retired. So thanks for joining us, Caitlin. What is it that made you interested in science as a kid? I think you've kind of taken a journey to get to Baton Rouge. So as a kid, I think I didn't even know what I was doing with science. I very much loved to be outside, play with different leaves and grass and build things with them, like semi-engineering, but the kid version. And 
was always interested in different concoctions. My mom would always joke around and call things different experiments that I put together. And so that was really my introduction was more just kind of play-based learning outside. And I loved school. So my original passion always was to be a teacher. So I actually took that career path, went through school and ended up teaching middle school math and science. And for college, it was really when I did my undergraduate classes, it was a geology course that really got me interested in science. And I think it was very much that's when I learned that science wasn't necessarily in a lab all the time and that you could actually go outside. And so for labs, for this one class, it wasn't sitting in a building. It was going out hiking and looking at different rocks and trying to figure out how they formed and which structures and going through the history of the earth, but being able to see this. So this was in Western Massachusetts where you can see mountain ranges that were formed when Pangea was formed. So it was all these connections from things I enjoyed as a kid. I loved learning about Pangea. That was probably my biggest excitement in science. I'm like, well, there's this puzzle that just exists in the world that like we can figure out. And so it was kind of those connections came back to each other. And so when I was teaching, I noticed how much my kids loved actually doing science and not just learning it. So we would do different lab experiments. They would engineer little water diversions, which is funny at the time. That's what I study now. And I had no idea that that would be kind of that exact career path. During a science fair, I had a student who did a project on the BP oil spill that took place down in the Gulf Coast. And her project was the most effective way to clean up oil. And it was using a chemical dispersant is what she found. And I was so just like taken back by this project that I was like, wow, like this is that got the gears turning. Like this was something I wanted to look more into. So when I was kind of on the fence about leaving teaching just because the lifestyle really wasn't for me. It's very mentally exhausting. And I really just missed learning. I didn't have as much time for it. So I went, moved to New Jersey with my mom. She was moving to kind of build a life to retire. And I went with her and there was a local university called Stockton University. And that's right on wetlands. And so what drew me to that program is that your science classes were in boats, they were in the marshes, they were in the wetlands, they were in the water, you'd go, go physically into the water to catch fish to identify. And so it was very much that first thing I loved in undergrad where it wasn't so much being in a lab. We did some of that, but a lot of it was just being out on boats. And through those programs and through those classes and labs, I got introduced to the technology aspect of research. And that was really a huge impact on what got me to Louisiana and at LSU and a lot of my interests in oceanography. Great. You mentioned the technology, and I know for the AGU poster that you guys worked on, you use some of the Bruker portable XRF technology. And then you're getting, you're working on your PhD right now. What is it first that you worked for the poster? What was it that your study was for the poster? And then next, what is your study for your PhD um, project? Yeah, so for the poster, we were using the handheld XRF to measure concentrations of different elements in soil, grasses, and water. And so some of that was using the handheld and then some of that was using the CTX back at home. And it was 
we use this method called a transect method and it's basically a line and you the line goes from the water inland towards like further inland and so we were taking samples at dist different proximities from the water and so when you're closer to the water you're going to have higher influences of agricultural runoff and wastewater treatment plants and pollutants as you move away from the as you are closer to the water and then as you move towards the wetland you get a lot of the freshwater runoff so it tends to be the concentrations of nutrients tend to be filtered a little more and that can also vary based on what was there before but if you have a general like clean landscape like you do in New Jersey because that area is very well protected by government regulations called a National Estuarine Research Reserve. It just means that you can't put a lot of pollutants in the water. You can't build, industry, like industry can't build on those lands. So they tend to be a little bit more pristine. And so at Louisiana State University, I study how hydrology, so water movement impacts water quality. So water quality is, it's how healthy the water is. And so that can be looked at in a bunch of different ways, such as the amount of dissolved oxygen, the amount of salt, which is chloride and sodium. There's quantities of pesticides, herbicides, heavy metals. And then within the sediment, the water carries that sediment and those sediments also have different concentrations of elements. So I'm looking at how, what, when we have flood diversions or flood management strategies, how is that going to impact the water quality? So the Mississippi River is a famous river for a lot of pollutants from agriculture, heavy metals, wastewater treatment. And so I'm all of that gets pumped into a system when it floods called Lake Pontchartrain, which is some you might be a little familiar with. It's a huge lake in Louisiana, but it has tidal influence, so it's considered an estuary. So when they open that spillway, all of those nutrients from Mississippi River and all those pollutants and heavy metals then go into Lake Pontchartrain, which isn't used to that large amount of contaminants. And then it actually goes into the Mississippi Sound and it decimates their oyster industry and really impacts their fisheries just because they can't handle all of the pollutants. So the Mississippi has been called the muddy Mississippi. Are you seeing any surprising? repercussions still from the flooding that happened from Katrina? Are you still seeing some of those sediments coming and being surprising or any vegetation that's not made a comeback yet that they're hoping to see come back? Yeah, there's lots of areas that uh, still are affected by Katrina and even more so um, Hurricane Ida that just occurred we, there was a huge amount of wetland loss. And so Louisiana actually has roughly 40% of all of the wetlands in the United States, but experiences about 80% of wetland loss. So it's kind of, it's a huge amount. And a lot of it can be due to hurricanes kicking up sediment, freshwater being introduced to marshes, and then those plants just not being able to survive. It can be due to die-offs from oil spills and different ranges like that. And so different types of plants can handle different environments. And so you have some that handle salt really, really well. They know how to filter it. And then you have plants that don't. And so they can't, if you get all of this fresh water suddenly or all the salt water, it changes the habitat. So those plants will tend to die off and that will degrade the marshes as well. And on top of that, when you have, it's kind of a catch-22 in the sense that 
when you have the runoff from the land and the nitrogen and phosphorus, you will get certain algae that grow rapidly. And so that's more what I study right now is how that nitrogen and phosphorus basically causes this exponential increase in harmful algal blooms. And so studying those nutrients is really impact or understanding those nutrients is really impacting how we better preserve our coasts. I know that you're very early on in working on your uh, PhD, but you said you had put together some slides that you'd be able to share with us on our YouTube channel. What are included in those slides for people that want to jump on and see those? Yeah, so the, it starts with basically an overview of what water quality is. And so it, again, emphasizes that there's hydrology involved, meaning they're wet. There's hydrophilic vegetation, meaning it's plants that love water and thrive in it. And also those hydric soils that are nutrient rich and can, are in anaerobic environments. And so we're concerned uh, with water quality in wetlands, just because that's one of the main drivers is that there's water there. And so we study um, basically dissolved oxygen levels. It goes through those similar steps that I mentioned that are or the characteristics of water quality that we study. And there's a few pictures where you can see wetlands. And then it goes into what I personally study as harmful algal blooms. So it goes through the characteristics of what a harmful algal bloom is. So I can go through some of these with you. So the characteristics of a bloom are their exceedingly high density of algae. You have a singular few species dominate of algae, which are all emphasize that algae are like really small microscopic bacteria that exist in the water. And so when you have a bloom, there's a visible accumulation. So when you look at the slide, you can see that there's a very green image of waves. And so what makes them harmful is that you can have, there's, there's two methods that sometimes can coexist or be independent of each other. So you'll have mass production of um, algae, which can cause fish gill clogs and then anoxia, which is dead zone. So it means that if you have all this algae on the surface, oxygen can't get through the water, neither can light. So then you have this area where nothing can survive. So that happens a lot in the Gulf of Mexico and is pretty well studied actually through LSU and Nancy Rabelais, who is a really cool scientist if you ever get to look for her. And so I also talked about the negative impacts of algal blooms. And so it can cause food web disruptions, which is similar when you have microplastics and toxins, other toxins in the water. There's allergies and skin irritation, contamination and death of shell fisheries and aquaculture. It can cause acidification issues. And then next I go through some of the point sources of algal bloom. So what's really causing it and how it's affecting it. And so the causes are light availability. So they're photosynthetic organisms. So they love light. When you have warmer temperatures, you it's that's an environment that's really great for algae to grow. When water is stagnant over time, it gives it time to accumulate pH changes. And then as well as the main one I've been focusing on is nutrient loading. So that nitrogen and phosphorus in the water. And so I study it specific type of algal bloom and it's called cyanohabs and they're basically like that green blue green algae that a lot of people are familiar with and so they can when they die they actually can present a toxin so this has been studied as early as the 1930s and that's actually when the first study of a harmful algal bloom especially cyanobacteria was studied 
And it was because they saw this bloom and one way to kill the bloom is by using copper sulfate treatments in the water. But when you use those treatments, it causes lysis, meaning it breaks apart the, the bacteria and then death, which then releases their toxin. So thousands of people got sick. And then that was really the first study on a harmful algal bloom, specifically of cyanobacteria. And that took place in West Virginia. And so then I go through my study specifically. So it's looking at Lake Pontchartrain and that spillway so that you can see that there's an image of the spillway and some NASA images where you can really see that green water from satellites. And it's pretty striking. And you can also see the influence of the Mississippi muddy water. And it's, it's pretty striking, but it's also very, it's really cool to look at because you can see how these water patterns Perfecting it. What are some of the things that we're doing now to preserve our coast versus what has been tried and maybe you don't know historically, but uh, some of the things that have been tried? So one of the big things they did to preserve our coasts is the levees that are built along the Mississippi. But the issue with that is before we had the levees, when water levels would rise, that water would go into the floodplains that were all along Mississippi, creating that fertile land for agriculture. And so the water had somewhere to go. But since we built up these levees, the water doesn't have anywhere to go. And if you look at a map and you see the Mississippi River, it looks like a huge pipeline that just goes right out to the Gulf of Mexico with very few outlets. And so previously, this occurred about in the, like, the 1950s, was really big in the engineering of the levees. Um, so previously there weren't really many openings for the levees. It would just sometimes breach. People will actually flood their agricultural lands and in order to preserve, in order to avoid flooding in lower lying areas. And so what they started doing was called sediment diversions and spillways. So the diversions, some of them will, are trying to build back up the marshes. So there's a lot of sediment and mud and in the Mississippi. So if you create a diversion, instead of it going straight out to the Gulf, it will try to infill those areas that lost wetlands. And then for the water diversions, that's really just to avoid flooding. So that's what I, where I'm studying is a water diversion that goes into the that goes into Lake Pontchartrain. So there's a couple different strategies. So down here, we have something called the CPRA. And really what their goal is, is this 50-year master plan on how to better preserve our coastlines. And so it's very research-based. They work with the local universities and that's where a lot of the funding comes from for wetlands around here. And so their main goal is to avoid flooding while not harming the ecosystem and to build back up the wetlands. So they also, they're the ones that are really planning these diversions, funding the studies for them. There's also evidence that building wetlands is actually just going in and planting wetland vegetation is most effective, but it's also one of the most costly. So the, the method that's equally effective and less costly is actually the sediment diversions. So there's issues with the sediment diversions though, because then you're putting fresh water into areas that aren't used to it. So then you have other habitat loss. So it's really deciding, are we going to help the ecosystem or the humans? And sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's, it'll be one, humans for a little while, no ecosystem, which will eventually impact the humans as well. So it's really, there's not always a right answer, but there are methods that are a little bit better. 
So you brought up the wetlands, but would you define the wetlands for us? Wetlands are basically defined as land that is wet. And they have changed this definition over time because there is a better marker and it's called hydric soils. And basically that's soils that have just been saturated and compacted and water has been over them for a long time where they actually can survive anaerobic conditions. So they're good area without oxygen and it's actually creates a lot of good dissolved organic matter, which is very nutrient rich. And so wetlands can be really anywhere they can be. There's a good amount by the Great Lakes. If you look in Kansas, they have these like little wetland pools. So there tend to be more concentrated by the coast just because of the water influence, but there are some that occur inland more. And wetlands be saltwater as well as freshwater, or is it just freshwater? Uh, you can have both saltwater or brackish wetlands. What is being done to conserve the wetlands that are at risk? One thing that's interesting is there is no eminent domain laws for coast for environmental protections. So that does cause a little bit of issues. You can be sued. Is ba- the government can be sued for environmental protection strategies that impact fisheries and personal property. So that does cause a little bit of an issue. So what the CPRA does is they're very good about having the community involved. And so they host town halls, they do, they present research findings. So they'll use different models to simulate the best case scenarios, worst case scenarios. And so if one of the things that they try to emphasize is like, yes, it may hurt your oyster reef but it's going to build back Louisiana. And so Louisiana is a little different because it's one of those states that people from here have a lot of pride in. And so they don't wanna see the negative effects. And a lot of the times they'll work with the government. So one of the things they did with a diversion that was built to build up the sediment, it was going to affect where a bunch of oyster reefs are and people lease out uh, land to build these oyster reefs. So what the government did instead of being like, you can't live here, sorry, those farmers then were able to get new leases in different areas where they would have the right conditions for oysters. So it's very much, they try to work with the community and this uh, coastal master plan that they have is actually starting to be adopted by different states because Louisiana is experiencing what climate, what climate change from anthropogenic causes will happen to other areas later on. So we're kind of getting the first brunt of it. And then, so we're kind of a case study, us and actually Panama are really hit by what's going to happen in future, in the future concerning coastal lands. You had mentioned your student and I missed, is, was it high school or middle school that you were teaching? I think high school. No, it was middle school. She was had a really good project. School? Yeah. Okay. You had mentioned her oil spill project and how it kind of uh, got you thinking more about the future. How how did that happen to get you thinking more about the future? How did that shape what you're doing or thinking about now? So it was very much just the question she asked. Her main goal was she just wanted to see if there were ways to make things better. Like very simple goal was like she was very loved marine animals. And so she knew how an oil spill impacts marine life. And so 
just seeing that engagement and her asking all these questions, like how long would it take for the ecosystem to come back? There were questions she couldn't answer and questions she could. And so that was one of the ones she had was like, how long? And I was like, oh, I agree. Like how long would it take for the ecosystem to return back to baseline conditions, which is actually kind of the basis of my thesis now is mm -hmm. if you have this, a huge event such as opening the spillway or hurricane or fl different flood mitigation strategies, how does that alter the ecosystem? How does it alter the water quality? And how long will it take to get back to that original scenario we had where there was good water quality, low nutrients, low toxins, where you just had a balanced state of, of the environment? So it really definitely directly influenced my thesis decision. And I have reached out to her since. I, I know her parents. And just I showed her my essay where I explained what got me into it. So she was really excited and felt honored. So this kind of that's excellent to uh, know from a student standpoint how you influenced people. So is it possible to get back to the original or to even get back to a better environment? What are you finding out with your, your studies? So I'm definitely very early on in my studies and I'm currently building the model right now. So I'm using a program um, called Delft 3D. It's through a company called Deltaris and they're out of the Netherlands and with the University of De uh, TU Delft is the name of the university. And so I'm very much still in the beginning stages of just creating. But a lot of the issues with getting back to initial conditions is we scientists are studying things for a lifetime for us. So it's like 40 years, maybe of a career longer, shorter. And politicians are only in office for about eight years. So once we finally convince a politician, like, hey, this is an issue, they switch and you get a new one. And then it's kind of this like this red tape issue where we're, we're still being like, hey, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. But it's hard to fix with certain political boundaries. And that can even be just local boundaries where, like Florida, for example, their all their basin, all their water is managed by basin. So basically where the water comes from and where it goes out, that's one area that's managed. Here they do it by county. So you have to then have a collaboration with the county. So Florida is a little bit more efficient in how they handle and manage water and water quality. Here, you have to go through a lot more hoops. And especially where areas with the Mississippi, that goes all the way up to Canada. And I think it's about 50% of the continental United States is the Mississippi River Basin. What can we as a society do to combat the wetland problems? That is what I'm studying, though, are the solutions. So one of them, it really is, much as we all feel individually responsible sometimes for this, it really comes down to industry. And it's not so much something we're doing but we're, we're adding to it. We're definitely helping, but industry practices tend to be the biggest polluters. Certain industries are taking a lot of water for like fresh water to, and not reusing it to create bottles and things like that, where if they reuse the water, it's less impactful on the environment. You also, a lot, especially a lot of the airline industries typically have in the past have been known to Put a lot of carbon into the water, but they're or sorry, into the atmosphere, which you get that ocean atmosphere interaction. So they're even working to cause a negative or at least neutral carbon footprint through carbon credits, which basically are there. It's a way of just trying to sequester the carbon, so put it back into land and not into the atmosphere. Very good. And it's interesting you brought up 
the reusing water as opposed to using fresh water. Uh, we always think of reduce, reuse, recycle mm -hmm. with materials, but water is a resource that uh, doesn't come into that thought necessarily. But I like the idea that that is a way that corporations, industries can uh, combat some of those issues. Well, good luck trying to find more solutions. <laughs> good luck. Good luck to to scientists and to industry, not just to Caitlin, who's can only do her part. <laughs> yeah. But the one um, specific solution we're looking at for Lake Pontchartrain and we're trying to model is so when the Mississippi flood, so you get a spring flood stage of the Mississippi River. So it's where the water is the highest. So that's when there's the largest risk for it to flood New Orleans. So basically there's this flood control button that they can press. It's not quite a button. They have to lift up a bunch of slats. There's a picture of it in slides. And it's once the river gets too high, it will trigger it. And the Army Corps of Engineers will open the spillway and let it all come at once. And so that's what's really harmful to the environment is it has a it takes a while for it to recuperate and for to be able to have fish living there again. So that's that that time scale I'm looking at is how long it takes. And so one method we're looking at is we you can predict when this is going to occur. It's not some random event. It happens every year. It doesn't necessarily always cause huge floods, but sometimes it does. And so we're looking at instead of just releasing everything from the spillway, since we know when it's going to occur, we can pulse release it. So if we spill a little bit, in an earlier month, it'll bring the water level down. And then if water levels remain down, maybe we don't need to keep opening it. But instead of just doing this one large spillage, we're trying to do these like small ones that so this ecosystems aren't as like shocked by it. That makes a lot of sense. And it's amazing until you really see Lake Ponce, you can't appreciate how really, really large it is. Yeah, it holds. up in the Midwest with the Great Lakes, it's uh, comparable to one of the Great Lakes, I think. Mm -hmm. I believe but it's I like Erie. Which one. Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's right to what I heard. But it was amazing to think about because they don't think about how big it really is. Mm -hmm. It's six cubic kilometers which is a lot of water. That is a lot of water. <laughs> and so what happens is um, the spillway, when it's been opened, has put in 14 cubic kilometers of water. So it there's not an, enough space there. So it just shoots right out into the ocean, into the Mississippi Sound, which is where they're also struggling. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Well, good luck, Caitlin, with your <laughs> PhD and with all of your studies. What would you recommend a listener do next for more information about some of these studies that are going on? Is there a, I guess probably the CPRA has websites to look at and does LSU have studies online that we can look at as well? Yeah. So a lot of studies tend to be open source. If they're not, you, if you email the author directly, they will be happy to send you their paper. If ever, Papers are always free. If you reach out to the professor, they would love to share their work. Other ways you can look for more information is the EPA website, the USGS website, and NOAA's websites have a plethora of information just for the community, for teachers, for students. So it's really, they have a range of audiences. I also encourage you to 
go to your coastlines, go to your wetlands. A lot of the times there's going to be a nature reserve there where they'll have information about your local area. If you're lucky to live by the coast, most states have a, coastal states have a national estuary research reserve and they have their own websites and you can actually go there and uh, learn about what they're doing and how they're trying to protect the environment. So there's a lot of different avenues you can go through. Perfect. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Well, the nice thing is, Caitlin, that our talk today, we have talked about some of those methods of studies that were used for the AGU poster. And then we talked about practical applications of studies that are being done, just the nuts and bolts of some of the behind the scenes work that's being done on the wetlands. And it's great to hear that there are scientists out there that are taking these studies so seriously and working to help humanity undo some of the mess that we have made. And it's a it's a nice reminder as well to thank you that even though as individuals we feel like we need to take on responsibility that some of the responsibility that we need to push for is for the industries to make better choices on our behalf. Thank you to our speakers today. If you would like more information about today's topic or to submit a topic idea, please email info.bna at You can also check out more information in today's show notes. Join us next time as we look at a new solution with more scientists and technicians in all sorts of industries.